0: Hello, and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon, and today I'm with Nick Diner. Nick's a swell, awesome guy who is based out of Michigan. Uh, You might know him from his band The Swellers that he's made music with for years, but he's also produced great music for people like Derek Grant from Alkaline Trio, We Are The Union, Lights Over Bridgeport, and tons and tons of others. I think we have a really fun... Talk, you can hear his passion in it. So, what you should do is you should listen to this episode. Then, after that, go to his Noise Careers profile, check out his Spotify playlist, read his discography and bio, and get to know him. I think this episode's pretty kick ass, so check it out. Hey, one second before we get started with this interview. Noise Careers is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones, we're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain refer recording your voice today?
1: Well, I actually just picked up these new microphones from Advanced Audio Microphones. Mm. They're in British Columbia, Canada. And I was kind of just trying to save up all my money and just get like one be-all, end-all mic, maybe two. You know, just Mm -hmm. so I could have people come in and be like, there's that mic, that's awesome. But yeah, I was turned on to this company and I got them all like a couple days ago. So I was like, oh, this is so cool. You know, I get to pick one. So I was going to use the uh, RE20 style mic, Ah. and I I was excited because that's, you know, a broadcasting mic like you Mm -hmm. see it on the Howard Stern show. I'm like, oh, I'm doing a podcast. This will be great. But I really wanted to try out this Tube U67 style mic. Ooh,
0: U67 is one of my favorites of all time, so that's pretty dope
1: yeah i bought a pair of them uh i was looking into u87s and buying an actual one and actually a lot of engineer friends were like don't even bother with that one it's kind of just like the whole you know you gotta have a gibson les paul and like that's just everybody's like standard answer so they were like dude the 67 is just 10 times more badass and sounds good on everything So for the podcast, this is my first time actually using it. And when I tested it out earlier into Pro Tools, I was just blown away. I'm kind of used to more, in my own studio anyway, some cheaper mics. Mm -hmm. And uh, they kind of have that kind of high-end hiss, which is nice when it's in a mix sometimes. Mm -hmm. But yeah, by itself, this thing sounds awesome. I have it on a heavy-duty stand right in front of my face so i feel like totally legit
0: <laughs> nice nice I, i'm looking forward to checking this out i've heard good things as well so um i'm gonna have to peep out what they're doing
1: excellent yeah and then uh, i'm just running it straight into my uh focus right liquid sapphire 56 nice. uh, nothing fancy yet uh, i'm kind of just getting into the whole world of uh you know shopping for preamps and outboard gear cuz oh god bless your soul it's gonna, it's going to be rough <laughs> oh it's it's awful i'm lo- i'm loving it and hating it at the same time but it's i can already tell it's going to be a never ending cycle
0: yep yep um so tell me about your background in music
1: well you know started playing keyboard before i was 10 years old just kind of dinking around and i think it was then i didn't realize what it was but I found out that I had an ear for music, you know, like I would hear these WWF wrestlers theme songs on TV and then I would <laughs> just grab my keyboard and I could kind of play those and, you know, my, my friends and my parents, whoever was around, they'd be like, how did you figure that out? How'd you learn that? And I was like, oh, I don't know, man, like whatever. So then eventually I wanted to get a guitar because I wanted to just rock and roll. You know, I wanted to play what I heard on the radio. Uh, my brother played drums. So we were nine and 10 when that happened. Wow. So we had someone to play with all the time, which was really cool. And pretty much the progression from there was like, oh, man, we need to sing. We got to get a PA system. So there's some speakers we need to get. And then it was like, whoa, we can get this four-track Tascam cassette recorder. Mm -hmm. Because that's what was in all the magazines in the 90s. Kind of just like, record yourself.
0: Which one did you get, the Porta 7?
1: Oh, man, I don't even remember. I was literally 11 years old when my yeah. dad bought it for me. I think so I,
0: I, I was I, I was same age, and I got a Tascam port of 7.
1: Oh, nice. It, it might have been that. All I know is that it was four tracks went right to a cassette tape. Mm-hmm. And I think at the time, I could only figure out how to do two of the tracks, but that mm-hmm. was enough for me. I was just like, yes, like I can do a guitar. And I was too afraid to sing out loud, so I kind of just hummed into it. But yeah, mm-hmm. that was my first recording. From then, you know, it was just kind of like technology kind of just got a little bit better every couple of years, and I used some digital like I had a zoom 10 track recorder and then eventually mm. an Akai DPS 24, you know, with this this faders that slide yep. up and down and they're all cool. And uh basically I didn't know how to use anything, I didn't know why something was called. You know, I I I just had no idea. All I knew how to do was hit the record button and capture the sound so because i didn't know how to do anything regarding eq compression reverb uh even panning i Mm. didn't understand panning you know so i just i recorded everything and tried to make it sound as good as possible so that was really hard you know trying to do some of our first demos i'm recording my brother playing drums and i'm telling him like your snare drum's really loud sometimes, and then sometimes it's really quiet, where Mm. normally I could just, I would throw on a compressor and we'd be good. But I basically forced him to play it really, really well going in. And same thing with my voice. So basically as brothers, we ended up kind of having this built-in limiter Hmm. just because of how we learned how to record our own stuff. So when I sing, you know, my low stuff is Pretty loud, and my high stuff is pretty loud. And that same thing with him on drums, he just became this machine, and it was because we had no other way. That was kind of uh, something I looked back on. I'm like, wow, I'm glad that we kind of were really dumb back then because it forced us to be really good.
0: Yeah, and that, that there there is a thing of, like, that's the right way to learn, and sometimes everybody gets, you know, there's two different attitudes of, like, oh, the computer will compensate for me, or something else will compensate for me, or, or I'll just do it myself, and that's usually the right attitude for becoming a great musician. Yeah,
1: definitely, and uh, you know, I guess basically after that, you know, when we were 14 and 15, we started our band, The Swellers, mm-hmm. and long story short, we were a band for 13 or 14 years, and toured the world a bunch of times, and retired last year. So now I've been trying to do the studio thing pretty full time, just keep my fingers in the music somehow.
0: Nice. And so, so tell me about that transition from musician to producer.
1: Uh, Well, before, I, I started kind of doing the whole computer, Pro Tools, whatever recording thing in like 2011. I could pretty much just do it whenever I wanted. When I was home from tour, make a few extra bucks. But now it's kind of like, hey, dude, pretty good at this what Mm. what would happen if you finished the rest of your basement so it wasn't just like this concrete bunker what would Mm. happen if you actually bought some nice mics what would happen if you you know actually looked up some stuff uh and just learned how to record properly and learn about all the like why things do what they do Mm. so that's kind of been me the last year or so then that's what people would say to me they're like dude your stuff sounds really awesome Have you ever thought about doing this? And every time someone shoots something at me, I'm just like, oh, dude, I got to do that. So, you know, I'm always striving to get better and better. And, uh, of course, your family and friends don't really understand that. They're like, dude, you can't just drop thousands of dollars. It's like, yes, I can. (laughs) Like, I need to be awesome. But, yeah, the transition is now it's kind of like... uh, I can book more bands just because I know I'm going to be home. And I don't have to say, "Uh, yeah, I might be in Australia that day. Uh, (laughs) Let me know. So it's pretty, pretty cool. I can book stuff eight or nine months in advance, which is kind of crazy. But I did that recently. You know, and I actually got a band from Brazil coming in. Oh, nice. And I was able to kind of tell them, yeah, I'll be home for sure, (laughs) which is definitely cool.
0: Very very cool. So so tell us about your studio.
1: I recently named it O'Neater Studios. Mm Mm-hmm just basically after the Wonders uh, and that thing you do. So a lot of people, you know, they ask me, like, is it Wonder Studios or Oneeder? And I just tell them Oneeder because (laughs) it's just, it's way funnier. It just makes me laugh. (laughs) So so the other side of my basement is finished to be the live room, kind of the loud room. And then the half that I'm sitting in now is kind of the control room slash hangout room. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to be able to have this in my own house and just kind of treat it to sound really nice. Yeah, just kind of every year, I want to say, there's been... It, it kind of evolves. Mm. And that, that's really important to me. You know, every couple of years, I, I would hit a standstill and kind of be like, well, I don't do this for a living. It's fine the way it is. But now that I'm trying to do this as my pretty much full-time gig you know, it, it's really nice to be able to kind of pour some time and some money into the studio and make it a thing. You know, I got a website for the first time ever. Oh, nice. uh, it's pretty much been all word of mouth up until then. And yeah, so uh it's it's cool. And so far, it's mostly repeat customers. Mm. It, it's like bands coming in to do their second EP or their third full length and stuff like that. Because, you know, as you know, bands, it's it's really hard to get them to put some money toward it, but, you know, they have to remember that it's, it's kind of their gateway into getting people to notice them. And, uh you know, it's going to be around forever floating around in satellites and stuff. So you might as well.
0: <laughs> it's true. It, it, it is true. And it's one of those things that's hard to get people to realize is that like, you know, if you do well on this and if you things or things go even well further down the line, people are going to hear this forever. Like, you know, it, it, it's even like a funny thing of like, uh I'll tell some EDM, kids that I work with, it's like, you know, when you're laughing at Skrillex, you know, remember he was 15 and he was doing recordings that good, <laughs> like, you know, you're <laughs> right. like, oh, is the Nemo band and it's like, ah, oh, well, you know, he really put his all into it for that to be that, but you know, yeah. it, 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 it may, if you do well, everybody's going to hear what you were doing at 15.
1: <laughs> exactly. Yep. And, you know, it, it's kind of embarrassing to look back at some of my old recordings that mm. I did for people just because you know, they would come in and sometimes they would record a whole full length for like a hundred bucks. Uh, sometimes I was too intimidated. So I wouldn't ask for money. Uh, you know, I was like 15 or 16 doing the stuff in my basement with all the Flint, Michigan local bands. And, you know, like I said, I didn't know what, what panning was. I didn't EQ anything. Uh, I didn't understand that you had to master anything, but the bands never asked, you know, like what was wrong. They were just like, cool, burn us the CD. And then we're going to burn it and then like sell it at the shows. So basically, everybody was getting these really quiet mono recordings from my studio, <laughs> but it was all they had, you know. Nice. And, and then right around, I think it was like 2004, my good buddy Mark Mahalik in Chicago, he was kind of the main sound guy at the Flint Local 432, like the venue where we got our start. And he was like, dudes, I got this studio and I know how to trigger drums. Mm. And we we were like, what? Like all of our favorite bands have that sound. So that's when the Swellers went in and we did our first EP with him. Pretty much every other band followed suit. So I kind of stopped doing the recording thing because I realized I don't know what I'm doing. Mm. And then, you know, as the years went on, kind of figured out what I was doing a little bit more, you know, and then when I switched to using a computer and Pro Tools... It's like way easier to, I guess, manipulate the sounds. And I could also send them to get mixed Mm. because, you know, at first I wasn't mixing anything. Uh, I was sending it all to Mark or uh, Stefan from The Descendants. He actually did a little bit of mixing for me. So every time I would send stuff out, you know, and people would write me back and kind of just be like, hey, man, this is really good. Like, do you do this? Is this your thing? And I'm like, well, maybe it will be now. I don't yeah. <laughs> I don't nice. know. So that was always really cool. No, I think that's
0: a smart way of playing it sometimes too is is like, you know, mixing's is obviously uh, not the easiest thing. And sending the, that out at first can teach you a lot because you can get feedback of like, you know, like I, I had a couple of friends who made the move from musician to producer. It's like, well, dude, it sounds like the kick drum mic's being hit by the kick drum every time. Maybe put it about halfway back instead and <laughs> things like that. And you, right. know, you, you learn some ropes that you don't have to learn how to repair before you get get good sounds. And then it's a lot easier to mix it instead of just trying to fix something that's a total mistake.
1: Oh, yeah. Like the first few bands that I recorded, you know, cause I, I put out a feeler online. Like any bands want to come make an EP with me, mm-hmm. I got some new stuff. And I thought it was going to be some local bands who were like, let's do it. But I had a band from Chattanooga, Tennessee come up. Oh. And then a few months later, a band from Pensacola, Florida. And I'm all the way in Michigan. So I'm like, oh. what are you doing? Like, what, why are you, ca- I'm, I'm learning how to record here. Mm. But luckily I have a cool guy who's going to mix it. And you know, they just said like, they like the sweller songs mm-hmm. and they like the sounds that I like. And I was nice. like, wow, that's a pretty cool reason to come to me. So I was like, oh, I hope I can do this. But yeah, every time I would send the songs to Mark to mix, he would have something to say. And it was mostly good, mm-hmm. but he'd be like, hey man, there's a couple of glitches here and there. Mm-hmm. I think you have elastic audio turned on every track, and mm. your computer can't handle it. And I'm like, I'm like, I don't even know what that is, Mark. And you know? so <laughs> I would switch it up, and you know, he's a genius. Like he's so smart when it comes to this stuff. So even just listening back and looking at my files. Like, you know, he taught me how to consolidate everything, how to zip them and send them over. Mm. So every time there was just something different. He was like, hey, when you edit the vocals, uh fade in and fade out a little bit later, because sometimes the breaths are getting cut off and it doesn't sound natural. And mm-hmm. I'm like, whoa, cool. Okay. Like, you know, just stuff I would never think of. It's like I, I see the waveform, like that must be the beginning of it. So I'll chop everything else out. So, yeah, like yeah. I just kind of learned a little bit at a time.
0: that's yeah, that stuff's all important details that you sometimes just need feedback on.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: So uh, you mentioned you played guitar, obviously sing, uh, and keyboard. Do you play
1: any other instruments? You know, basically anything that's related to guitars. So, you know, if it's like a banjo, mandolin, or bass, anything like that, I can tend to figure out. And like I've played all that kind of stuff. On uh, records before, uh, upright bass, things like that, and then yeah, I've been really into synthesizers lately, like the whole analog world. Mm. Um, I just I, I picked up a couple analog synths and
0: oh, nice! Anything good?
1: I, uh, I got the Moog Sub 37. That's a great piece, yeah. So that was kind of like my the the holy grail which is mm-hmm. stupid cuz like i barely know how to use it or play it but i was still just like i need that one you know mm. but before that i got the korg uh, ms20 mini yeah it's a great, and great one too it's super fun i just love the sound of that and at first i was like this is a bad buy cuz i'm never going to use these but turns out almost every band that comes into my studio, we end up using it mm. at least once, whether it's like a lead line or like making some kind of synthy snare drum sound. Mm. But yeah, it's really cool.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that, that stuff's always fun and can get the creative juices for. We, we're, I'm lucky enough to share a backyard with like a all analog synth shop and it's
1: just like oh man go over there get inspired and try not to spend money Oh that's the best <laughs> but yeah as, as as far as anything else you know uh, I played drums very minimally mm-hmm. uh, basically because I bought two drum kits for my studio and I was like I might as well sit down and maybe try to play a couple beats to see if I got this because even though my brother played drums growing up I never played his drums he was pretty protective of him, And our, <laughs> our, par- our parents were also like, hey, let him do his thing. You do your thing, which was, which was good. You mm-hmm. know, like, I'm glad that he got to like, I mean, because now he's basically just professional drummer guy. Yes. Like everybody wants him to play with them. So it worked. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so just basically anything that makes up a rock and roll band, I can kind of fake my way through. But yeah, vocals and guitar were or what I did in the band for so long.
0: Nice. So when a band comes in, we have, we have this like saying on the podcast. Uh, on one side, you have Steve Albini who doesn't really get involved past like just be like, "Yeah, hey, I think that take was okay." And then you have a John Feldman who fully rewrites the band's songs. Where do you see yourself on that spectrum?
1: Uh, I'm sure a lot of people say this, but right in the middle of that spectrum, <laughs> basically. <laughs> that is what uh, a lot of people say. <laughs> it's it, and it's it depends on like how eager the band is to have help or how just good the band is right away uh sometimes if i really really like the band i'll offer you know as much help as i can but usually bands come in with a not a lot of money not a lot of time but they'll be doing two songs and then there's like something in the song that i just keep hearing that they're not doing i'll stop everything and be like guys this is eating me alive <laughs> I need to talk to you about something. And, you know, we'll stop and check it out. But, yeah, I've never really been the type that's like, hey, that's a cool chorus, but, like, here are the words that I want you to say and the melody and the harmonies. Ready? Go. You know, sometimes what I'll do, though, I'll just be like, hey, like, I I do pre-production every now and then Mm because my band got to record at the Blasting Room with Mm -hmm. Bill Stevenson and Jason Livermore, and the pre-production there gave us some of our best songs ever, Mm -hmm just it was like having a fifth band member basically what style
0: of pre-production was that
1: it was four days of all of us in a room and Bill Stevenson at the console with a talkback mic into like these monitors that we had on the floor basically being like record the song like live essentially and then we recorded all the songs the way we had them and we just kind of after every time he just talked about like all right, here's your verse here's your pre-chorus here's your chorus and I really like doing that now. I like labeling the parts of the songs in Pro Mm -hmm. Tools. Uh, It gives you a good visual. So, like, when a band comes in... it
0: even makes you sometimes, like, you just get some weird... Like, I really don't believe in looking at the computer, but you sometimes do get a really interesting perspective once you see it laid out like that.
1: Especially for the band. Like, for Mm -hmm. me, it's like I know exactly what's happening, but, like, when the band's in here recording, you know, they'll do their scratch tracks or whatever... For pre production, and then I'll be like, hey, why is your second verse four times longer than the first verse? Mm. And they're just kind of like, whoa, what? Like, what do you mean? And then I'll show them and I'll play it, and they're like, dude, we were just jamming. We didn't even know. And I'm like, okay. You know, so one thing is like cutting the fat, rearranging songs, making sure there's some kind of symmetry, making sure you don't get bored. Uh, There's all that kind of stuff. So, like, when we were at the blasting room, Uh, it was mostly that kind of stuff. Like, hey, that transition, that transition's way too long. Cut it down. Is there a better way to do that? I don't like the way that chord plays into the next part because it doesn't change chords and there should be a chord change. You know, there's just millions of little things. Mm -hmm. And then one of them was in the Sweller song called The Best I Ever Had, Mm -hmm. which ended up being our biggest song, you know, just like YouTube plays and all that kind of stuff. And that's the one that, you know, everybody wanted us to play last and would sing along to. That song didn't really have a chorus at first. It had like a hook, like a little line that Mm -hmm. happened. And then Bill was just like, this is the most catchy, awesome song on your record. And I was like, awesome, thanks. He goes, but you don't have a chorus. I need you to go write a chorus right now. Hmm. So we stopped and I'm like, what kind of, that's pressure. Like, there's no way I can just write a chorus, you know, so... And then I I came back in and I showed the guys. I'm like, guys, I think I got it. Mm -hmm. And we had this chorus and this song was born. And I loved that process so much because it was just like having somebody else help you out. So when I have a band in my studio, I'll pretty much, you know, say, hey, that's a really cool part. That should be the chorus. And that should happen again, you know, because sometimes bands come in and they don't have that pop song structure and not every band needs that but that's kind of what the listener subconsciously wants. I'm like, dude, that part at a minute, 10 seconds is so catchy and so powerful. I want to hear it again at a minute and 50 seconds. And Mm. I want it twice as long there. And then jammy part 99, that happens at like three minutes. Let's make that not as long because it doesn't really do anything. It's cool. So, so, you know, all this stuff kind of happens. And then I'll chop up the song and we'll play it back for the band. And they'll look at me like, dude, now it sounds like a, you know, like a get up kid song or a blink One Eighty Two song. I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, see, cause they kind of, they kind of, that, that's what we want to hear. And they're just like, I don't know why we didn't think of that. And I'm like, that's why we do pre-production, you know? So now <laughs> when you record, you're going to get this like really awesome song. And you know, kids in the crowd, they're not necessarily going to care about the song structure. Like, yeah, they're going to want something to sing along to. You know, as best they can, but they're not going to be like, "Oh, that's a non-traditional song structure. I can't get behind this band." <laughs> but like someone, who... I know, hear someone, them say that
0: all the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's just like they're talking crap on the message boards. Like, oh, I don't don't like how they have two outros. Uh, <laughs> but like, what I told them though is, you know, when you send a demo to someone who's booking a big show or someone who is going to be looking at bands to sign to a label, booking agents, anything like that they might be listening for that song structure because they're thinking in their head, man, these guys know what's up. They've been around the block. They're not just these kids jamming in their basement who happen to make a good sounding record. So that stuff is pretty important to me and to a lot of people. So I kind of try to split the difference. And that's also my rule. You know, we try everything, but if the band doesn't dig it... I think that's the
0: most important rule there is at any record that has a good, enough time to do so
1: yeah you know try everything if someone has a great idea awesome if someone has a crappy idea you know whatever no no one should be offended if it doesn't happen i come up with stuff all the time and then the bands will come to me and be like "Mm, dude we don't dig that and i'm like hey fair enough cool let's let's move on yeah well (laughs) you uh,
0: you, the 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 price of good ideas is is paying for them with bad ideas first
1: oh yeah absolutely so yeah that's uh that's kind of like the whole pre-production world and So I like to be involved and kind of, I really like cutting the fat, getting to the point. And if there's like a really dumb lyric or something, I will, I won't hesitate to tell the band to change it. (laughs) You know, sometimes you come in and you write lyrics last minute and I'll say, hey, that's a lyric from, you know, a Queen song. I know you, you, I know you didn't mean to, but you jacked that whole paragraph and they're like, oh, that's what that was. You know, it happens all the time. That's funny. So what do you think you bring to records most often? I think what I bring is <laughs> what's it's actually funny uh in-tune guitars. <laughs> and like I basically every band that comes in here, especially kind of younger newer bands and older bands too, I basically teach them how to properly tune a guitar for the first time in their lives, <laughs> yeah, even if yeah. they've been doing it for 20 years, you know, it's kind of just like, yo, you pound that low E string, let's flatten that a little bit. Hey, you fret the crap out of that G string no matter where it is. Let's flatten that a little bit. So, you know, this last band I recorded, they were called Mooney Tyson, mm-hmm. and they're from Columbus, Ohio. Kind of had this, uh, I told them it was kind of like a dead milkman, kind of like folk punky rock and roll thing. But their one guitar player, everything he played was really sharp. And then the one guitar player, everything he played was just fell flat. And mm-hmm. He just bent the strings, he soloed a lot, and they kind of went, fell flat. So, luckily, we did pre production and we figured out how both the, the players played. So when it came time to record, I knew exactly what to do for each guy. And the record just sounds awesome so far. Nice. So that's one thing. But yeah, I'd say the other part is kind of just like, I, always, I keep saying it, cutting the fat. Mm-hmm. But even, even when a band's not looking for pre-production or if, like we did that uh, Flint Water Crisis compilation. that yes,
0: was very cool that you guys did that because what oh, happened up there is just such a fucking tragedy.
1: Yeah, it's out of control, man. So you know, we had like nine bands come into my studio and they wanted songs to put out for charity. You know, good exposure for them, good exposure for me. Mm-hmm. But like there was this one band and uh, they had never been in a studio together or even separately some of them. Uh, they were called Bird House.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and they they were like this acoustic guitar through my orange rocker verb amp. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like dirty acoustic, uh, female vocals really powerful drums, really groovy bass. I'm like, you guys are a cool band. This is great. But there were times when like in between the verses or the choruses, there was just a ton of music, like a big old interlude. Mm -hmm. So I was like, guys, I really like this song. This is what would make me like it even more. And I kind of just chopped out like 30 to 45 seconds of the entire song. And I said, listen to it now. And luckily the the edits were seamless, you know, because we were doing it real fast. Yes, but, that, 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 you know, that could
0: be a problem trying to convey the uh, points sometimes if they're not.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, because like the crossfades, it made it sound really natural, and I was like, oh, sweet. So I played it back for them, and they were just like, yes, that's awesome. And then uh Kim Rosen, who mastered mm-hmm. the song, specifically yeah. wrote me K- about... K- that's fine. Kim's my old assistant. No way! Yeah, she does some awesome work, you know. She did it for charity and did a lot of a lot of mastering on that record. You know, she specifically wrote me and said, "Tell that band that that song rips. It's awesome." And I was like, "Dude, that's so crazy!" It was their first time in the studio. We spent like five hours on the whole thing. And now you're getting these, like, professionals coming at you being like, this is rad. Nice. So, you know, now they're pumped. Like, they're like, we want to come back and record with you. And then we want her to master it. Nice. <laughs> I'm like, oh, great. You know, that's,
0: that's how this thing works. Very cool. What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio?
1: See, I don't even know if uh, I would call it a mistake because I guess they don't realize that they're doing it. And, like, someone kind of has to teach them. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah, I think it's just that kind of like jam space mentality of just like yeah, this is the part where we just rock out. And then 9 times out of 10 I'll be like, "Cool. How do you feel about not doing that?" Or <laughs> how do you feel about shortening that? Or you know, and they'll be like, "Oh, you know, I guess we never thought of that." So I think that's the the number one thing that I notice. Also, just bringing in a guitar that's not properly set up or just like drums that are completely beat to hell. Uh, you know, there's just like little things. Luckily, you know, my studio is a place that has drum kits, bunch of snare drums, bunch of guitars, guitar strings, bass, basses laying around. So if you come in with like corroded strings and like one pops off before you even get to the studio, you know, I got you covered, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing the biggest I'd say I just thought of it, the biggest mistake you can do is not paying attention to what each guy or girl in the band is doing in the practice space. Because when bands come in, it's a very common thing to hear. I didn't know you played that. Yes. yes. Or <laughs> or the, what's worse is when the vocalist is in the vocal booth and the whole band sitting with me, they're going through their first take, I'm getting levels, they're warming up. And the band just turns to me and goes, we didn't know they sounded like that and I'm like what do you mean they're like that's weird I don't know I think he's singing differently and then they have this big talk where it's like we didn't know you sounded like that and I'm sitting there in the middle like dude this is like the voice of your band what do you mean you don't know they sounded like and that's happened a lot of times
0: yeah because they're also singing through a PA that's not quiet enough or an amplifier (laughs) that has no trouble like oh we've been singing through the bass amp for three months
1: oh yeah dude (laughs) that's exactly what happens and Uh, I've had I want to say three or four bands either break up completely or lose a band member or like you know kick a guy out just because after the recording session they were like we can't have that liability anymore we didn't know like because sometimes you know you just get your friend to fill in on bass like hey you want to be in a band here's a bass like figure Mm -hmm. it out. They come into the studio and, you know, I'm expecting a musician to play the instrument, but sometimes people just don't know how to play their instrument properly, how to take care of their instrument. So, of course, I'm kind of a jerk about it in a funny way. Like, I'll make the bass player feel terrible, but the rest of the band laugh really hard. So it's not like a complete lose-lose situation. So, like, I almost <laughs> reteach them how to do it. And m- lo- most of the time, people jump right in and they're like, oh, cool, got it. That was a small mistake. I'll never do it again. You know, like I'm never going to bend the strings this much while I track. And it's like, sweet, awesome. It's like, I'm not going to pound the crap out of the strings with my pick when I don't need to. You know, there's all kinds of little things that mm-hmm. you learn when you get in the studio. And then they translate live really well. So I've I've seen bands live then they were okay. You know, they were good. Uh, they came and recorded with me and then I saw them play live again. And it was like night and day. It was like, "Oh cool, you're using the proper gauge strings now. Uh you tuned your drums a little deeper so they don't sound like, <laughs> you know, piccolo snares yep. for toms." You know, it's just cool. It's it's really awesome and, you know, I I act like I'm picking on all these bands that come record with me, but that's exactly what happened with my band too. Mm-hmm. No, you know, I mean sure. that, that, that
0: that's part of the thing is you're supposed to go to somebody who's more of an expert than you or else. Like Rick Rubin has this great saying of um when you're choosing people to collaborate with, if they're just as good as you are, or have the same opinions on you, they're superfluous.
1: It's true, man. It, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the earliest thing I can remember is when we did one of our first records with Royce Nunley, who was in the Suicide Machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was a Detroit guy. So we went to him, brought our drum kit to him. First thing he did was detune the toms like a ton. Mm-hmm. We were like, we were like, what are you doing? And he's like tuning these down. And we were like, uh. And then he played them. And they were like, huge they were booming and mm. we were like wait a second that's how you do that you tune <laughs> down the dr- the toms we used to think tune them high so your sticks bounce off of off of them really well mm. you know so there's like all these little things that you pick up and you know that's just one of like a million things that we learned and I'm happy to pass on some of this information to other people cuz like you know I'm I'm not going to sit here and act like I'm the boss or like I'm a know-it-all but everything that I say is pretty good you know <laughs> like it, it worked pretty well Nice. Uh, what's a smart thing you
0: see bands do during the recording process?
1: Oh man, I think the smartest thing bands do is when they know how to act around each other and how to treat each other. Mm, that's a great answer. Yeah. Oh my goodness! Like sometimes there'll be that guy that's like, every band has recording guy,
0: mm-hmm. like
1: you know the, the guitar players. Like oh, I'm building a home studio, so I kind of want to shadow you and see what you're doing. And I'm like, okay. And most of the time, you know, they'll ask questions. They'll be respectful. Every once in a while, you get that guy that's over your shoulder, like, mm, aren't you going to put a limiter on that and also like do some side chain compression? And I'm just like, why don't you just like back off? You're literally breathing down my neck. This is, and you know, th- and that guy is the one who usually is like the 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 ringleader, the conductor, the boss, whatever. And I get that because I was that guy mm-hmm. in my band and I tried not to be annoying, but sometimes you just get fed up. It's like, I understand. It's your art, Mm -hmm. you know, like it's your baby. You're spending all this money. So you might be a dick to somebody in your band if they're wasting your time or if they're disagreeing with you. But the best thing that you can do is just try to be cool with everybody and like, you know, explain your piece and be respectful. Because I, it's like, even the littlest things. like, I don't even know some of these people. And the first thing they say to each other is like, yeah, dude, you always screw up. Like, you always suck at that. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm just like, I'm like, ooh, like, I can tell you guys haven't been a band for a while. Because if I said that to our bass player right now in my band or whatever, you know, he, he'd like open hand slap me in the face and be like <laughs> you don 't talk to me like that, dude, yeah. you know or or like he would like legitimately get so bummed out, and I see these kids in bands like they 'll seriously sulk in the corner after they 're done tracking because they were like chewed out by their singer or something, and like it's it 's not my place to jump in and do that kind of stuff, but if a band or, you know to kind of settle the score between two quarreling band members i mean but if a band is here for, like, nine days, I've seen, I've seen like, I keep ripping on bass players, but I would see the bass player, like, sulking for, like, a two days straight, and then I would go ask him, what's up? And they would say, oh, this guy said this thing to me, and it just really... And I'm like, oh, okay. So, then I would go find the guy who said the thing to him, and luckily, you know, it's all good. It's almost mm-hmm. like a, what's that, like, celebrity rehab show? It's almost <laughs> like that. There should be a, a show... Uh, I'm pitching it right now. Okay, it's just it's a uh, just local band in the studio. That's that's what it's called. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, I, I,
0: but the, I, there there is a really good point to this that like no one teaches bands how to be respectful of each other, and like a lot of um, my new book I've been writing on like creativity is like how bad it gets with like these people like their creativity gets totally shut down because how abusive and unconstructive the things they
1: say to each other are. Oh, absolutely, and it's. It's just absolutely gut-wrenching to, like, hear some of this stuff, even if they're just, like, little side comments and stuff. I'm just, like, imagining how I would feel if I was just, like, in the studio. And, you know, some of of these bands, like, they really respect me or, like, look up to me because, like, of my, you know, my band and the records I put out. So if some guy says something to another guy in front of me, he might just be like, oh, like, why'd you have to go and say that right now? Or like mm-hmm. one guy's trying to be cool in front of me by putting someone else down. And yeah, it, it, it's just such a bummer. But like, you're right. Like when creativity is stifled like that, it, it's 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 almost something that needs to be talked about ahead of time. Like in my band, my brother and I wrote the, we, we wrote our records and the other two guys in the band were aware of that, mm-hmm. you know, they, they never crawled to us being like, but, but, but please just let me have a song, you know, because yeah. we said, Hey, this is kind of how we work. And if you ever have any ideas, let us know, but really we would love for you to just put your touch on what we do. And then they were, they, they were, like, all right. And that was it, you know, and then they went on tour with us. They worked their asses off and it was kind of just explained you know ahead of time this is kind of how we work and we don't want any feelings to get hurt down the road with any kind of misconception i think bands almost need to come up with like a a battle plan like a game plan before they start moving into big decisions like that
0: hmm yeah no i think that's a great point actually so what happens when you and a band disagree about something speaking of uh how you treat people well
1: <laughs> oh man so when a band and i disagree about something Usually I just go their way. If I have this thing and I'm like, hey, you really need to change that because like let's say your guitar lead is clashing with the lead vocal and the guitar lead's actually going the whole song and it's not special anymore because it's just nonstop, most bands would be like, Oh, we get that. You know, I'm like, we need to use it as a clever songwriting tool, like a technique, ear candy, all that kind of stuff but if a band just is like no this is the song this is how we wrote it i'm i'm just like all right that's totally cool and i try not to act bummed out cuz i mean you know it's not my song it's some it's it's like these bands get their time and their money together to make a record i want i want them to leave and be super happy So I don't want to, I wouldn't, I've actually heard of a lot of engineers who are like, no, like I'm not recording it unless it's this, or you guys need to rewrite this. And your drummer is not going to play on the record. I'm programming the drums. You know, there's all that kind of stuff. And Mm. I've I've heard every story from bands that come to me that went to somebody else. And everybody has like these horror stories from like, uh, you know, it's like, oh, this, our friend said he would record us and he goes to... You know, whatever school of music, and he didn't let us do this. He didn't let us do that. Whatever, whatever. So, I try to be pretty laid back, unless it's like you know they're they keep bending their strings out of tune. Yes, Uh,
0: that's never correct.
1: (laughs) Right then, I'll be like, hey, we're doing that again. Hey, change the way your hand is. Hey, change the way your whole body is. What are you doing? You know, because if it's not in tune. And what's weird is I I always thought it was evident to everybody when something was out of tune, but I've had entire bands that were like, sounds good to me, Mm -hmm. when to me it was like a complete like quarter step sharp. Mm -hmm. And there was like this horrible dissonance. And then I would finally have them retrack it and I would crank down their string a little bit, like mid tracking or something. Mm -hmm. And then I would seriously just have this sigh of relief, like... (gasps) Oh, we got it! Like, oh, that sounds so good now. And then the band would just be like, "Oh, we don't, we don't really notice the difference." <laughs> and I'm like, I'm "Like crap!" You know. But to me, it's like it's so rewarding. Like when you finally get everything to lay together, and it just sounds awesome. So at the end of the day, as long as the guitars sound good, the vocalist sounds good, the drums sound good, the mix is good, I'm happy. You know. Even if my creative input didn't get it in there all the way. You know, maybe I'll just squirrel it away for something I might do in the future. You know, (laughs) like, you know, you you never know.
0: So let's do some rapid fire questions. Like, you know, kind of like four sentences or less on how you feel about some modern production stuff. How about amp simulators?
1: Uh, I personally don't use them. And I think that's just because I have cabs and I have heads here. And I really like the way they sound but I don't have anything against them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just really like loudness. I like (laughs) loud and real. That's kind of my thing.
0: Nice. How about sample drums in that case?
1: In that case, I have a really cool room, but it's also kind of little. So every once in a while, I might not get the roominess that I want or like the attack, like if a drummer doesn't quite hit the snare the way that I would want them to or hit the kick a certain way, you know, things like that. So in that case, I do have slate trigger. Mm -hmm. And as long as I have a really nice overhead mix of everything that's real, I can blend in some of the trigger. So at least I do have the real drum sound in there. And uh, I think that that's a really, a really awesome, you know, kind of clever thing. Mm -hmm. So as long as the reel is there, I like to I like to get that extra smack in there every now and then.
0: Yes, totally agreed. Uh, how about pitch correction?
1: I'm a huge fan, which is weird. I am I love everything to be all real, but I'm a fan of it because I know how it feels to be in the vocal booth, like throat bleeding. You're you're just you're just down in the dumps because of how much it sucks to sing the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. So I really do like getting, you know, four awesome vocal takes, not trying too hard, just making sure to my ears, everything sounds pretty good. And then, yeah, just go in and manually do a couple of little p- pitch correction things here and there, as long as it's not uh, noticeable. But I know for sure, like on my voice, I love some pitch correction. Mm. But what's cool is with all these graphs, like autotune and all that, over the years, I can see my... Pitch and how it's changed, and every year I just I become a better singer, which is cool, mm. so it's it's almost a nice way to kind of see how close you are and kind of how to control it and what your quirks are and all that kind of stuff but
0: uh, yeah. I, 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 it was funny uh Steve Evans and I were having this like discussion the other day about how we've been seeing like a kind of younger generation of singers be a little better with pitch, and we were wondering if it's like that thing of like you know you can now grow up singing into autotune and watching it and seeing your flaws. Whereas, you know, obviously, uh, previous generations didn't have that advantage.
1: Makes a lot of sense. I mean, you get a lot of kids like, you know, Newfound Glory, for example, mm-hmm. their first couple records, you know, they used a lot of tuning because it was kind mm-hmm. of a new thing. You yes. know, they kind of just ran it right through and that became just part of their sound. Mm-hmm. So these young pop punk kids they would start singing like, <laughs> like they would do the abrupt changes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I have bands that come in all the time and I tell them like, you know, they might not be on pitch very well. Like they might be a little flat, a little sharp, but the way they change notes is very robotic, yeah, it's which very is kind weird. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's kind of cool sometimes, but at the same time, it's like, it's like, wow. Like I know, like you heard auto tune and that's how you're learning how to sing which is so strange yeah but then you watch like Michael Jackson tracking vocals in the studio Mm -hmm. and it sounds like he's going through pitch correction and it's this comped awesome vocal take but no it's just take number one it's just just one of the most talented singers of all time you know four feet away from a microphone Mm -hmm. just kind of doing his thing and you're like oh what if people were like that still how cool would that be yeah. I know I'm not.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I, that, that, that is definitely a rare thing, what he had. Oh, yeah. How about favorite soft synths?
1: Soft synths? hmm Well, I guess what comes with, uh, with Pro Tools is just that vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really one of the only ones that I've used because as soon as I got the hang of that and just saw what the knobs do and realized that that's what a real analog synth has on its, you know, board... Mm-hmm that's when I went out and got my synths so I bought the actual hardware ones so yeah like I've I've heard really good things about uh massive yes it's great uh I might actually be picking that up just to maybe just to like try out I might even use it at my friend's place but yeah I think having this uh the Moog Sub 37
0: yeah that definitely replaces vacuum easily
1: yeah, yeah. So I've, I've just been doing everything. I don't even run it MIDI or anything. I just go direct in right into the preamp or, or even like an amp, you know, a Marshall half stack with a Moog going through It's a really cool thing. Nice. So I, I just try to bring a little bit of that, well, a lot of that real analog sound to the digital world. So, you know, that's why I got these tube mics. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's why I got some analog synths. It's why I use real amps. Also a really big fan of ribbon mics. Nice. Just so like my Cascade Fatheads, they kind of, mm-hmm. they, 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 they're they on everything. You nice. Know, what, like drum room stuff, um, guitar cabs especially. I've used them on vocals. Used them on an awesome violin player the other day. Yeah, uh, yeah they're,
0: they're great on strings. Yeah, we have a pair too.
1: Yeah, it, it was very cool. And you know, the, the violinist actually said, I've never heard my my violin sounds this good on a recording and I was like oh that's so cool you know Mm -hmm. my 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 crappy little studio did that awesome Mm -hmm. (laughs) nice
0: uh how about mastering
1: your own records oh man uh that's actually something that I'm getting into Uh, I've done it a few times basically because someone was like all I got is you know 600 bucks Mm -hmm. and I need this record to come out now and I'm just like, "Oh God, well, I know how to make it louder, I know how to make it, you know compressed. So you know, I've taken a shot at it a couple times. So I say, go for it if you really know what you're doing. Uh, I'll be honest, I don't 100 percent know what I'm doing. <laughs> I just I, in anything. I just turn stuff till it sounds good. You know, if you're you know, let's say using the blasting room as an example, if those guys wanted to track mix and master, yeah, like by all means, like I know their skill level. Mm -hmm. and all that but there is something really cool personally i think about sending it somewhere else Mm -hmm. just someone who hasn't you know because if you're mixing and you're thinking about how you're going to master it later you might change some things about your mix Mm -hmm. but if like for example when i did the new sweller song on the not safe to drink compilation Mm -hmm. i mixed it myself which was the first swellers thing that i ever mixed and i was kind of like this sounds really cool but whatever. It's kind of lifeless. Mm. It's great, but it's lifeless. And then when I got the master back from Kim, I was just, that was the first time when I was like, I'm a mixer man. Hell yeah. You know, like hearing her master made me feel like I did my job so much better, which is mm. a really good sign of a good mastering job. Totally. So, and and that song and that master actually got me, I want to say two or three bands in the next couple months because of that that we're like we we want you to record and mix uh our next record which is cool so apparently i'm mixer guy now and i'm cool with that nice so let's
0: get into uh how long do you like to take to work on a song like how long does it take you to track
1: a song in best case scenario and how long does it take you to mix i really like to say a day For tracking one song. Mm -hmm. So, like when a band comes in and wants to do one song, I'm like, cool, we'll do a day. Uh, When they have two songs, I'll say, let's do two days. Three songs, three days. And then after you get off of that, um, you can kind of start compacting things, you know, just a little bit shorter. So, if you want to do four songs, maybe we could do that in three days. Mm -hmm. If you want to do five songs, we could probably do that in four days just to save money, make sure that we're not just sitting around, you know, not utilizing our time properly. Um, and as far as mixing goes, it's, it's really tough to say, you know, sometimes I'll spend, you know, three hours on a mix and I'll have an awesome mix. Uh, sometimes I'll spend like 12 hours on a mix, but what's cool is, you know, if the band did more songs, obviously I can use that template and kind of shoot them over It makes mixing so much quicker for all the other stuff. But yeah, I'd say, uh, I'd say, I'd like, a song mixed and tracked, you know, maybe, like, a day and a half. That, that would make me happy uh, if I had that long.
0: Nice. So, tell me about one of the best moments you've had in the studio.
1: One of, like, the best moments, and, like, in a non-corny sense, like, just the first time that I listened back to a mix that I did that I really liked, mm. where I was like, this is, like, a pro-ass mix... And that was probably in the last few months. And I did like three bands in the last, you know, like all in one time span. And I used to be that guy that was like, I'll mix your stuff, cause you don't have as much money to spend. I understand, I'll, I'll give you a quick mix. So like when I actually started really enjoying my mixes as something that I would listen to myself and really like if I had my own band and, mix and needed to get it mixed, I would trust myself. Mm-hmm. So that was a really cool thing because it kind of made me realize I was learning and getting better. And that's when when you do something new like that, it's always a really big jump start. So like, that's why I was like, got to get some new microphones, got to get some preamps, you know, like that, mm-hmm. that all kind of happened because I heard what I did and was so pumped on it. It was like a reward to myself. You know, on a more like sentimental note, I think the best part about recording is when you get so caught up in what you're doing and like you get emotional Mm -hmm. about a song that's not even your own. This band Lights Over Bridgeport, they're from the Chicago area, like Northwest Indiana. They came in and they recorded a record with me like three years ago. Uh, Last year they did another EP and it was just John the singer and I, you know, and I was tracking his vocals and he just started laying into this song. I think it was the last song they were tracking. He he's like I finally got the lyrics right, and I was like, all right, man, like I'm excited to hear it. You know, I like their band, I like them as people. I think some place in the second verse, I just like lost it.
0: Mm. Like
1: I just choked up, and I'm like letting him finish his take, but I'm just like,
0: <gasps>
1: <gasps> like I'm just like, okay, uh, and then the song's done, and Talk Back Mike came on. He's like, hey, man, how was that? And I was like, duh. duh. <laughs> totally cool, man. Oh, fuck. Uh, I'm like, dude, can you like hang on? I'm like, I'm really like choking. Uh, that, that like messed me up. And he's like, dude, what? And I was like, dude, I'm like having a hard time over here. Because, um, you know, becoming friends with him, I had heard about his father passing away, you know, quite a few times, you know, he, he referenced his dad. And I could just tell 100% that's what the song was about. Mm. And I was just like, oh, God, like, uh, like, and then Basically, because I told him that, he was like, "Okay, man, cool." Second take. Halfway through, he kind of stopped, and I was like, "Hey, man, you good?" And he's like, "He's like, dude, now I'm like losing it, man." He's like, "God, now that I know that it's getting to you, it's getting to me." <laughs> so we we were just like, "Duh!" Like trying to be like all tough, like, no big deal, man." Like, so that was like a really cool thing, you know, just making friends that you can kind of have that kind of moment with and know that kind of stuff about, and the fact that music can touch you like that. Like, that's just the coolest. Yeah,
0: that is rad.
1: I think that was, like, one of the most number one, like, memorable things that's happened in the studio.
0: That's awesome. How about worst moment and what you learned from
1: it? (laughs) Dude, it could have been when I recorded this one band and they did their first vocal song on vocals. And I would just, the singer just sounded like he was miles away. So I went into there. I don't have a window. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I went around to the other side. And he was six inches from the mic. And I was like, that's good. Like, I don't know why you... I'm like, your voice just sounds weird to me. He did the whole song. He did like four or five takes. I made the poor kid sing it like so many more times. And then I was like, cool, I guess that's good. I guess that's just how vocals are going to sound. They took a break. I went in to like, I don't know, check the pop filter out, check out everything. I just had the mic backwards. Mm -hmm. I was so bummed out, and I didn't mm-hmm. want to tell them. Mm-hmm. So I had them uh, I had them record everything else, and then we came back and got that song, but only like two takes. And I used the backward mic vocal takes as his double, and it sounded mm-hmm. awesome. So like... That's funny. That was a little... It was just something to save some time, but that was like a big like, oh, come on, man. Yeah. And then also just uh, any time that I've ever... like. A, just lost everything. Mm. You know, like, I, we got a good start on, like, some drum takes or something, and then I just didn't hit save on one song, or, like, I was halfway through editing. You know, just something like that. Mm. So at least now, Command S is just something I always do. I'm doing it right now. Nice, nice. <laughs> as, as I record into this, because that would really suck. I think I'm at like 59 minutes or something. So that's the, this is the longest uh, track I've ever recorded in the history of my life. (laughs)
0: Nice. Uh, Yeah. No, I, you know, I, I I had to, uh, I had to tell a band that sent me stuff to mix one time. I was like, you need Tell me right now, if uh, you look at your vocal mic that you said you stayed up to in all those vocals, is it facing the wrong way? And I just get an email back at a large spot that just says, fuck, because he sang the whole record in a day. (laughs) (laughs) And it was all backwards, and it just did not sound right.
1: I just have never done that. Like, mm-hmm. I've never had a mic backwards, so I didn't know what it would sound like. I don't know why. I, it was a well, kind of a newer mic. It was one of those Sterling Audio mm. uh, ST59s, which actually sound awesome. Mm. And it says Sterling Audio ST59 on the back mm-hmm. and then has like the logo on the front. So I, I looked at the word Sterling Audio and I was like, there we go. Yeah. Label. That's the front. The, the head grill looks exactly the same. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but,
0: it 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 does happen. What's nice about it is once it happens once, you're double you double check every time to make sure it never does again.
1: Right, mm. and you know, I, I guess I've never really had any terrible moments. Like I always thought I was going to be that guy that just mm-hmm. ruined a band's session, <laughs> and I, and I always kind of have anxiety about that. Like yeah. before a band comes in, I'm like, dude, what if what if these guys are like doing 240 beats per minute blast beats and they expect me to edit those. And sample them, and blah blah. And I'm just like, oh god, what's going to happen? But so far, so good. Nice. No, no big mishaps.
0: So let's get into some of your um, musical taste. Uh, what's a perfect record someone else has made, and what about it
1: makes it perfect? Oh man, uh, I want to. Uh, I might bring up Meatloaf several times. Wow, but, um, that, that, that's unexpected. Dude, Meatloaf, bad out of hell the first one, I guess they recorded that with a very little budget mm-hmm. at like kind of like a whatever studio. And just the songwriting on that is just mind blowing. Jim Steinman, who wrote a ton of Meatloaf songs, just one of my favorite songwriters of all time. Uh, he's done some great stuff that's not even Meatloaf's stuff. But uh, yeah, just all the different sounds and the songs, the way they came together, the way everything's arranged, just so awesome like that's like some people have like their classic record you know they'll be like oh like the beatles you know mm-hmm. you know like all the abbey road stuff the white album like and that's like their classic album but dude for me for some reason just bad out of hell bad out of hell and it, then it, if it, I,
0: it, 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 it's funny because I, I i get accused on twitter of being really agreeable like jesse says that that's all our favorite records so 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 for the kids r- r- gratuitously who've teased me about this that's my least favorite record of all time. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I, dude, that's awesome. Something man. about that, like I got forced to hear it too much when I wanted to be listening to hair metal as a
1: kid. It just oh, made right.
0: Me, my best friend's father would force us to hear that, and I'm like, dude, I just want to listen to fucking Guns N' Roses and Metallica, dude. <laughs> right. Well, dude,
1: get this. The thing about Meatloaf, it's all about... The place and the time mm-hmm. when, when you got into it. I heard Bad Out of Hell 2 first. Ah. So for me, I basically was like, cool, MC Hammer, Michael Jackson. That's what <laughs> were big at the time. I was like four or five years old. Mm-hmm. My friend Ray in first grade, he had like that CD of the month club or something. And he would get like the number one CD sent to his house. And I remember he brought over Ace of Bass, and I was just like, <laughs> oh, man. I was like, I was like, nah, son, not into it. Next one he brought over, it's, Bad Out of Hell 2. It, it's good, because that we just
0: hit another one of my fa- least favorite records of all time. Dude,
1: there you go. That's, yeah, that's okay, <laughs> Ace, you know? Ace of Bass. So Bad Out of Hell 2 comes out. I'm listening to that with him. And, dude, it was, like, the first real and music we had ever heard. Mm. Like, he was... Meatloaf's pissed. It's this big, long-haired guy, and he's talking about just, like, the... He's just being a badass, and the songs are 12 minutes long. And we were <laughs> like, man... And I have to say, Bad Outta Hell 2, I like more than Bad Outta Hell, mostly because of the production. It just sounds so cool. There's the weirdest ghostly demon background noises happening through the whole thing. And like that stuff gave me like nightmares as a kid. <laughs> like I would just hear like the weirdest, like it sounds like a ghost, just like doing something. And I would look at like the scary album art and just uh, the Swellers bass player Anto, he we became like best friends because of that. <laughs> like he he was just like, dude, that the the album art just scared me to death as a kid. And I was like, me too. <laughs> so so check this, you know, we're digging meatloaf, whatever. I just grew to love that style of that whole like op- like rock and roll opera, just long drawn out arrangements, lots of cool stuff going on. And I didn't know anything about what that, that was, I just loved it. Mm-hmm. And then the next record my friend Ray brought over was Nirvana, Nevermind. Mm. So then I was like, wait a second, I'm like this rocks maybe even harder and the songs are like three minutes and this guy seems cool, like he's not trying too hard. You know, and so that was my, that was like punk rock to me. You know, I was like five or six years old. Mm. And I'm just kind of like, yeah, this guy's cool. He has long hair, but he's also dirty, you know. <laughs> so I was just like, so Meatloaf and Nirvana were just That's early for me. Because, uh, you know, 1993 was a pretty big year for both of them.
0: Oh, yeah, oh, that, that, that is for sure. Give me five of your favorite records in your musical growth.
1: You know, Green Day Dookie was really important Uh, to me, and it it was, it's kind of one of those things, like it came out and I didn't know what it was Mm. or where it belonged or anything. All I knew is that it was, it was like Nirvana, but it had these melodies that were just like mind blowing to me. Like I heard Basket Case and like I had chills. And from that point, you know, I was like seven years old. And from that point on, my ear grew alike to i just was attracted to half step down guitar tuning mm-hmm. and that year came dookie and also the blue album by weezer yes. and i didn't i didn't i didn't even get into the blue album until probably a few years later i was like 11 or so when i got into that but it was just like dude half step down guitar is like the magical sound for me mm. it was just ingrained in my head And then, you know, talking to cousins and things like that, I was just like, Green Day, man, Green Day. And they're like, well, you like punk rock? I'm like, I guess, sure. And that's when the punk rock landslide happened. So No Effects, uh, Punkin' Drublick, that record, another 1994 record, but that also came a little later for me. I was probably like uh, 11 or 12, you know, when I first heard that. And then I think the record that made me want to get on stage and go play shows was uh, the Get Up Kids, Something to Write Home About. Nice. Because I saw them open for Green Day. And I remember watching that. I was totally front row, smash against the barricade. They were playing the song Mass Pike, Mm -hmm. which was the only Get Up Kids song that I knew at the time. I hadn't gotten their records yet. And uh, Mike Dirnt from Green Day was on the side of the stage, kind of hunched over like a road case, mm-hmm. singing singing along. But like no one could see him; he was kind of tucked away. But I, I I was like perfectly; I can totally see him. Mm. So I'm singing along to Mass Pike. He's singing along to Mass Pike. And at one point, we like locked eyes, and he kind of mm-hmm. gave me like a, a nod, like hell yeah, man, like good for you for paying attention to the opening band.
0: That's and I was awesome. ju-
1: And I was just like, this is you know, if, the, if this night wasn't already awesome, this is the coolest thing that's ever happened. And Green Day played, and I don't remember much of it. I was just kind of, like, still thinking about going home and getting the Get Up Kids record. So that was huge for me, being like, nobody knows these guys, but they're playing this arena. Not a huge arena, it was, like, a smaller one, but they were, like, killing it, man. And I was like, that's that's totally going to be me. And uh, stayed true to my word, man. Sweller started not too much longer after that, and... Uh, they were a huge influence.
0: Nice. So 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 what do we have next?
1: I would just say not a surf uh, their entire discography nice. <laughs> if I could. That it's just so weird. I you know, I bought that record in 1996 that came out, High Low, basically because it had the hit mm-hmm. and my friend was like you should buy that and I was like, "All right, cool." Uh, and it had two or three songs on it that were so near and dear to my, you know, little fourth grade self and I would like ride my bike to school after listening to that record and I was just like this is cool man this is awesome and I didn't like some of the songs they sounded gross to me I'm like why would they choose that note like that's a really weird thing to say I don't don't like the way the guitars sound whatever I'll skip that song so I don't know three or four years later no actually way more years later uh Trevor it's weird two Trevors Trevor Sternad who sings in Black Dolly or Murder mm mm-hmm. He was like, you need to check out Not A Surf. And I was like, dude, I loved them. And he goes, they're still around, and they make even better records now. So, of course, I went out and got whatever they had. About a week later, Trevor from A Wilhelm Scream (laughs) said, you need to go check out Not A Surf. I'm like, dude, I know. I'm all about it. Like, I'm (laughs) back on the train. So, like, two musicians that I really respected, you know, really just kind of valued what they thought were like, you would like this. Mm. So yeah, every time they put out a new record, I'm right there listening. And I only listen to like four bands actively, Mm. ever. I don't listen to much music, man. Mm. So for Surf to just constantly like make me happy with new records is a very cool thing.
0: Nice. Who else do we have?
1: Floor, the band Floor, Mm. their self-titled record. That's another one that I just heard the first song off that record and I went what is this and why are they only playing one note and then why does it sound like there's an explosion happening Mm. and I was just like intrigued I was like this is so weird it's unlike anything I've ever heard and it was almost like my first foray into kind of sludge stoner metal pop that kind of thing You know, they went on and they became Torch.
0: Oh, I didn't realize that that's what that was. Okay, yeah.
1: Yeah, and I didn't either. You know, like Mm. I was like checking out this Floor band and then someone's like, I'm going to see Torch. I'm like, I don't know who they are. And then, you know, look them up. Holy crap, that's Floor. But, you know, now Floor actually reunited a couple different members. It's the same singer, guitar player. Yeah, just such a weird, cool sound. So it kind of made me fall in love with like low tunings and... Melodies like that and just slow drums. Nice. We have one more. I mean, I, I would love to put Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell <laughs> One and Bad Out of Hell Two on there, but yeah, that, that's one of the toughest things for me. Mm. I guess, I guess for number five, I could just say that I'm not much of a record guy. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm like song guy. Yes. Like there might be like one of my like some of my favorite songs of all time. I've never heard the band's other tracks. So like the like the theme song from the movie Angus, I mm. uh, think it's called Am I Wrong by Love Spit Love.
0: Oh yeah. yeah, I remember that song.
1: I heard it on the radio one day when I was really little, like in the background, I was doing something. And I remember just that chorus just like took a hold of me and I was like, God, that's awesome. And then, I don't know, it was probably like five or six years. I just kind of every once in a while wondered, what is that song? What is mm. it? And then one day I heard it on the radio, and I was kind of just blown away. I was like, oh, my God, it's that song. I haven't heard it in so long. So I made everybody shut up, and I paid attention to every lyric that I could remember. And luckily, the internet was a thing. So I Googled, or actually, Google wasn't a thing. So it was probably like Excite or something. <laughs> yes, uh,
0: gee, all those Lycos, whatever. Yeah, oh, my God, Lycos, mm-hmm. yeah.
1: So you know, I typed in as many lyrics as I could, and boom, found it. And then I found out that it was on the movie Angus, which I rented, like, weekly. Mm, that's funny. So I was, I was like, oh, my God, this is crazy. Then also, like, uh, yeah, just this, this band uh Granddaddy. Yes. The, the song AM 180. It, it was in, like, the 28 Days Later soundtrack and things like that. I guess soundtrack songs seem to get to me. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah, like, I'll, if I make a playlist, it's, like, one song by one band and if someone says, hey, do you like that band? I'll be like, yeah, actually, just one song a lot. But, but that's all that matters to me. That's and it's weird because I, I thought I was strange for being that way. But uh, Bill Stevenson actually said the same thing to me. Well, I think, uh, I
0: think everybody knows also, like, we, we see now the data is that that's what everybody's moving to is people don't listen to full records. They just listen to songs and playlists.
1: Right. And, like, even what's weird is, like, even as a kid, Like, I had a ton of CDs and, like, a a boom box, and my brother and I would be hanging out, and I would put in, like, a Bush CD, and boom, I would play the song, throw out the CD, then I would throw in, like, the Spawn soundtrack, play one song off that, boom, throw that away, then I'd put in, like, Jewel, and then, uh, like, I just really loved shuffle before shuffle was a thing that's funny (laughs) and yeah and i used to get yelled at all the time for changing songs midway through but it's like oh i got enough of that one i gotta hear this now and so i think maybe a lot of producers and engineers we kind of might have that kind of like craziness like our brain just kind of goes all over the place when it comes to music
0: yeah it's it's funny i i think that there's a lot of producers who hold down a like i want to appreciate an album thing type vibe and then there's thing i'm kind of like I I, I feel like I have, like, a little bit of a thing of, like, I like when I can appreciate it but I'm mostly a singles person as well.
1: Like, it's weird, though, because, like, in the 80s and 90s, I don't know if it was just my taste or if it was real, but, like, there's so many throwaway songs on so many big records. No, it's totally true. Like, tons and tons. But now, like, Not A for example, every song on their records, I'm like, that's great, that's great, that one's awesome, that one's great. So it's almost like the digital world made it so it's like, hey... You need to make sure all your songs are good because there's no MTV anymore. <laughs> yes. So I thought that that was pretty cool. So tell me,
0: even though if you don't uh, listen to m- much records, what what is is there a band, a record, a song that's uh, been most inspiring to you in the last year?
1: In the last year, I would have to say the band Failure.
0: Oh yeah, great band.
1: Yeah, that it's. I, I heard about them probably like. Pretty late in the game, you know, mm-hmm. like seven, seven or eight years ago.
0: Yeah, I mean, that well, that, that first, that first record that was like the big one, I guess, it was like '98. I want to say '97.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and that that was the one that I heard, and I was like, "This is great." Mm-hmm. And then we ended up going on tour with this rapper named High to Hero mm-hmm. in the UK, and the band The Blackout was headlining. And we talked to the drummer who was playing with High to Hero. And he was like, yeah, you know, blah, blah, blah. This is just kind of my gig right now. It's cool. Uh, I used to play in this band Veruca Salt for a minute. Oh, that's funny. And I was like, oh, hell yeah. And he's like, oh, you know them? I'm like, yeah. He's like, yeah, that's cool. He's like, I wasn't in it in the beginning. I kind of did their later stuff. I'm like, that's cool. He's like, yeah, in the 90s, I did a thing called Failure. And I'm like, (laughs) and I was like, you mean like Failure, Failure, like Fantastic Planet? And he's like, oh, you you know Failure is? And I was like, yeah, dude. And to be honest, a lot of people are starting to talk about you guys again, especially in my music kind of world. Like, you guys are pretty sick. And he was just like, huh. Like, you could see the look on his face. Like, he's like, really? Like, (laughs) someone remembers who we are. And then a couple years later, you know, we just kind of stayed in touch via Facebook or whatever. His name's Kelly. It's like an amazing drummer a couple of years later, you know, we heard rumblings that Failure was getting back together and we were like, "No way, this is so cool." So, we went to their show at St. Andrew's Hall in Detroit, and yeah, we kind of talked about it. I'm like, "Remember when you said you were in Failure and we were pumped and you were like, "No one knows who we are." And I'm like, <laughs> "Look at this venue now." Yeah. And he's like, he's like, "Yeah, it's pretty cool, man." And like and they put out their new record, which is awesome. Uh, that song Hot Traveler is just one of the coolest things. So, I, I would say As, like, musicians and as, like, songwriters and, like, sonically, I just really, really love that band right now. I'd say they are my band of last year and this year. Nice. Yeah.
0: So the last question we have is, uh, what have you been working on?
1: Oh, man. uh, I have been working on a lot of my own stuff, basically playing drums, bass, baritone guitar, synthesizer, vocals... Uh, there's another guy in the mix and I don't know if it's like gonna be a band or if he's just having fun with me or if I'm gonna even make a record or ever play live but right now it's like a one-man show essentially Mm. and I'm just waiting to see what I'm gonna do and I have it all recorded uh, at my studio but getting these new mics and listening to the songs all the time. It's like, I want to re-record the whole thing.
0: (laughs) That's a bad sickness that we all have to get over at some point, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's just like, you know, because remember I was talking about kind of the melodic, slow, sludgy, Mm low-tuned, and synthesizers, everything that we've talked about, rolled into one project. Nice. And it's all the stuff that I love, so I'm like, I might as well do that. But yeah, listening to some of the demos or... I don't know if they're demos. They might actually become the record. But I'm like, yeah, that should be like 5 BPM slower. And it's already slow as hell. But I'm just like, yeah, maybe that should. And then it's like, well, the guitar is super low tune. Maybe we need a five string bass. Just make it an insane wall of just low. And I'm like, I don't know. So, yeah, I'm sitting on a whole lot of stuff when I'm not recording bands. And it's a lot of fun. But in the meantime, yeah, I got a band from Brazil coming up. And three bands from Michigan that are really starting to kind of tear shit up. Uh, One's called Hot Mulligan, uh, one's called Forest Green, and one's called Backpacks. And they're kind of from all over the place in Michigan, but they they kind of all play shows together. So the fact that uh, Forest Green came and recorded their first EP with me, and Hot Mulligan did a, a split with me, but the fact that they want to come back and then also Backpacks was like, hey, we want to do some songs. I was kind of like, man, am I like becoming like the guy? Am I nice. becoming the guy to talk to? I'm like, that's so cool. So like it makes me just really happy that people could, would hear something that I've done and be like, take our money and like basically take our songs in your hands because it's a, it's a pretty big responsibility. I'm just so excited that I get to be part of, like, this new punk rock scene that's happening. Because, like, I'm I'm the old guy now, you know? <laughs> nice. So, it, it's nice to be doing it in a different way.
0: Well, I don't like the idea that if you're the old guy, whatever the hell I am, then.
1: <laughs> hey, man, it's all about how old your soul is, man. <laughs> no. After your first couple tours and stuff, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. you your soul just dies and, like, you no longer have, like, a physical age. It's just all, like... Like you're just basically a ghost. Like, <laughs> nice. but I'm starting to get life again. I'm starting to feel like being in the studio making bands happy. You know, that's yeah. just like it's uh, it's given me a reason to live. I get you know having like a wife ties. too.
0: That is one of the best <laughs> ties. Is making bands happy.
1: Yeah, it, it's it's awesome. You know, when you get a, an email from someone being like, "This is great," and you're just like, "Yes, we did it." You know, <laughs> so so cool.
0: So rad. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet, that if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creators' website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you are unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.